The topic of tonight's talk is the sacred union of compassion and wisdom. There are three lines of pithy understanding that are often quoted in Dharma halls and Dharma circles, written by Sri Nisargadatta. And those three lines are, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. So tonight I'd like to talk about how compassion and love brings us closer to wisdom, and then how that wisdom brings us closer to compassion, and how that compassion again brings us closer to wisdom, and the cycle and the circle is ever deepening. Each one of us is drawn to spiritual practice for many various and unique reasons to be free from grief or depression or particular difficult paths that we've had, perhaps, uh, to be free from suffering in a general way, to realize peace, a kind of peace and happiness that's not dependent on outer conditions, a kind of peace that can be within our hearts no matter what's happening out there. Some people talk about being unconditionally loving, and this is a, a primary uh, place of, that fuels their practice. Some people talk about realizing God, or whatever that means to them. And I think that all of these reasons uh, are in this hall, and more, of course. Within all of that, interwoven with all in that, of that, is this common yearning, this spiritual yearning, to connect with ourselves more deeply. We come to the practice and we see that we've been disconnected from our hearts, from what's really true. We come to see the truth more and more deeply. This is a very sacred yearning to know ourselves, beyond our strife, beyond opinions, beyond the opinions, our own opinions, the opinions of others, beyond or before our past, which might have solidified into the error of seeing it as this will be forever, this past of ours will be forever, the error of that. We come to know ourselves in terms of what this mind and body is beyond the words, beyond the thoughts. This has been our beautiful journey here, our journey in life out of here also. So because of this yearning, we come to understand more clearly what life is, and we begin to enter another realm in our practice here on retreat. And that is a realm of our moment-to-moment experience where we begin to realize our suchness or the suchness of life, the beingness of life. This is from a great Sufi master that lived in the 1300s. His name was Hafiz. 
When the words stop and you can endure the silence that reveals your heart's pain of the emptiness or that great wrenching, that sweet longing, that is a time to try and listen to what the beloved's eyes most want to say. So it's like listening with our eyes. We learn that what it takes to receive the truths of life are simple things, like being present in a very big way, love, compassion, remembering and practicing our goodness. We learn that this is not only important, it's essential in order for us to come close to who we are. I may have mentioned already in another Dharma talk that I found an old um, journal that I was writing. Some years ago I found it, and I had written this journal when I first met Manindra. And uh, I asked him the question, what is the meaning of my life anyway? Why am I here on this earth as a human being. And in that journal, I had written about this great kind of quiet desperation that I had at that time, a very underlying desperation, which Manindra translated as spiritual urgency. And there's a word for that in in Pali. It's called samvega, spiritual urgency. It's an actual, it kind of, made my heart more at ease to know that that's, that's actually a true, valid, valuable uh, mental or heart state, this spiritual urgency. When I asked him, what is the meaning of life, the reason for living, Manindra answered, it's to develop wisdom and compassion. This is, this is the reason why you're living At another time, I can't remember whether it was before or after this question, he asked me a question. And he asked me, what what is your spiritual goal? And I answered in the only way that I knew how at that time. And I said, my goal is to know God. And that was the direction of my life. It was uh, absolutely clear to me, although what is God? That wasn't clear to me. But that's the way that I could express it. And so in the way that I could understand, Manindra responded to me because he had read the Bible. And in a passage of the Beatitudes from the Bible, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that was a connection to me that helped me to go on, to help connect where I had come from into where I was going, the purification of heart and mind. I could see that in my own heart, the presence of uh, these places that we are purifying, the presence of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is what caused a great separation in my heart, uh, a feeling of separateness that Uh, belittled me, that limited this sense of me, that made me feel so inadequate and not strong enough to go on. 
there was great suffering in my heart on that level. I could see that it was not just on a personal level that there was this suffering, but that it was also on a universal level. So I had to face this, this first noble truth of suffering. I had to be willing to come close to it, had to be willing to turn the heart to that place. So this yearning, this urgency, which we all have, gave me the courage to do that, gave me this kind of oomph to go forth, to not run away from that place. In practice, we need that connection with that urgency, which all of you, those of you that I know, and I know those of you who are not uh, connected uh, that I don't know, that we're all here because of that urgency. In intensive practice and in life, we hit, of course, a lot of hard places, a lot of tangled places, that we need a lot of patience to... mm, disentangle, to see more clearly through. A lot of inner and outer terrain, habitual places that knock us around, pull us around as if there were a noose through my nose sometimes. In practice, we begin to become more familiar with those places because of this urgency, and also a lot because of this tenderness this care, this ability to uh, care for ourselves because we can care for others also. I know a lot of what motivated me is I saw that a lot of my action and words in life were and to some extent still are places that separate me from others. And that is a cause of a lot of suffering for me. There are many times when in my practice I have the sense, I can't remember what writer said this now, I can't go on, but in the next moment, bringing, by bringing compassion and wisdom, I can say, I go on, I can't go on, I go on. There are many times when we can't do it for ourselves, but we can do it for others. And so there have been many times in practice when Um, You know, there's that meat hook in the back or the four horses tied to the four limbs of my body just tearing the body apart and feel like, I just can't do this. But when I sit down and I say, I dedicate this uh, to my children or to my mother or father, I dedicate this practice to someone else, then I can do it. Again, out of compassion, for others, helps me have more compassion for myself. So we can go on, we can face the truth, not just through compassion, but through a force or a balance that Steve talked about the other day and that Joseph uh, gave us the practice on, the practice of equanimity. It's said that equanimity is that power of the mind, that balance of the mind that leads compassion forward, that allows compassion to actually come close to what is difficult. 
so that there is not a reactivity to what's happening outwardly, not pushing it away if it's unpleasant, not holding on if it's pleasant. These are the two ways that reactivity plays out through aversion and through attachment. So it's said that through equanimity, which is an important force that gets woven into compassion, we're able to come closer to suffering. We're able to see things as they really are in a balanced way, through spacious care, a spaciousness of mind and heart, through balanced care, a balance of mind and heart. And we begin to surrender to how it is right now. Um, there are times when Manindra used to say, this is how it is, this is the law, surrender to the law, surrender to how it is right now. I'm just remembering now a time when I was taking him on a little tour of Maui, and we were in the car, and I was complaining to him for the, I don't know how many hundred time about my life, my past, and uh, how it was, and how it it affects my life right now. And as each one of you, I've come from a very challenging past, um, raising children on my own for many years, three of them, and then um, just trying to survive. And then at this time, I was complaining to Manindra about how it was. And one of the many times he said, Again, he said, surrender to the law. This is how it was in your life. Surrender to the law. This is how it is right now. Let go of the past. This moment that you are, uh, when you can bring love, attention, goodwill to this moment, this is the moment that's shaping your future. You don't have to let the past shape, shape your future. Surrender to how it was. Let it go. Surrender to how it is right now. Surrender to the possibilities that you have for reshaping your life. It's said that equanimity allows compassion to actually activate itself so it can go forth with more strength and face what we have to face. And that surrender is that equanimity. This is how it is right now. One of my friends and a person who cooks for us in retreat used to say when he had to face something really difficult about cooking on retreat, he used to say, well, now I'm saying with this difficulty, oh, well. you know." And then, of course, he would do what he could, but he'd say, oh, well. He says, this is a lot better than saying, oh, hell. <laughs> and... And that's where he was when he used to say, you know, complain about it, not do anything, not find a way out. He was in the hell realms. But in the oh-wellness of it, he could find himself in a fuller place. One time in practice, I was explaining to another teacher, Bilin Seydao, about this unrelenting dukkha that kept coming up, expressing itself in different ways sometimes in very personal ways, by the, by the past and kind of wrapping around a sense of me, mind, and I around it, that kind of suffering, or pain in the body that was really, really difficult. And um, 
I really appreciate some of my monastic teachers because of the way that they would simply just face it head on, straight on, and not not allow me to um, get lost in the suffering of it, but allow me to see through their own response and through their own way of saying, I remember Bilan Seidau saying through a translator, this is how it is, isn't it? This is the first noble truth of suffering, isn't it? And then ask me questions. Can you see the arising of it? Can you see the changing of it? Can you see the passing away of it? Can you see the ephemeral nature of it? So there was a caring equanimity that helped to entrain my own heart when my teachers, or this particular one, Bilan Seidau, responded to me, not giving me the, the chance to fall into the delusion of taking it all so personally, of drowning in the suffering, but of being able to float and be more buoyant about it. One of the things that um, our teachers in different ways tell us is that our resisting opening to suffering, our running away from it by going off into thought is one way that we run away just adds more layers that we eventually have to see through, eventually have to let go of. So perhaps it was possible by this way of being given this kind of reflection by Bilan Seidau that I am more able, sometimes, not all the time, to compassionately surrender to how things are, to draw nearer, to the moment, even if it's really difficult, without flinching, to face what's not been faced before, to, in, in a different way, to touch that hurtfulness in some way at some time and not personalize it, to just see it in its, with bare attention, in its momentary passing. So first, what happens in our practice is that we begin with mindfulness to connect without reacting to that inner place. And that brings forth a great degree of compassion, a kind of feeling, okayness about it. Someone came today and said, there were a few moments of just being with what's happening, just an okayness, a deep kind of um, being held by life in a different way, by the truth of life, even though it's difficult. So that at times our practice or mindfulness takes us to that place beyond the defining lines of what we call me, of what we call mine, of what we call myself, in this body, in what we call body, in this mind, what we call mind. So we see that in practice, the body becomes porous sometimes, not all the time, but there are moments when mindfulness goes to the body and what we call body, the defining lines of it go away. There's this porosity of the, of the body. There's this intangibility. 
there's this dissolving. We bring attention there. Mindfulness goes to some sensation in the body, and in that moment, it just goes away. It dissolves. Um, We think that it's bad practice, actually. A few of you have talked about that, that, you know, I go to the body and it can't be there. It just dissolves. This is when the understanding of um, the anatta characteristic and the anicca characteristic, the selfless, impermanent nature of what is called body begins to be known more clearly because of our ability to come closer with a gentleness. Various sensations of arising and passing away of what is called body are seen. Hardness, softness, heaviness, lightness, coolness, warmth, roughness, smoothness not overlaid continually with a concept of this is me, this is mine, this is myself. It's just the experience and the bare attention to it and the knowing of it. Of course, some experiences are challenging, some are delightful, but those are seen in a different light without reactivity, without pushing away if it's challenging without holding on, if it's delightful. And when this happens, this non-reactivity or this equanimity happens, this arising and passing away, this ephemeral nature is seen more and more clearly. So now practice is in the domain of deepening wisdom because of compassion, because of the equanimity interwoven in compassion. Wisdom comes the experiences in the realm of what is called mind, that extremely powerful, yet we begin to see so ephemeral experience of mind is known, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experiences. The moods of the mind, the objects of the mind, these become known more clearly. And each moment is like um, the Buddha said and that the sage Chandra Kirti paraphrased in this way, each experience of the mind of the body is like a flickering star, a mirage, a flame, a magical illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble on a stream, a dream, a flash of lightning, a cloud. It all becomes inwardly the experiences of the body and the mind, It all becomes like changing weather patterns. The seemingly solid body, the incredibly powerful mind, is seen as earth element manifesting as changing moments of hardness, softness, contraction, expansion. This is the manifestation of earth element uh, Joseph talked about last night, I think. The fire element manifested as changing moments of temperature, coolness, coldness, warmth, heat, hotness, various ranges of temperature. The air element manifesting as changing moments of swaying, jerking, vibration, stiffness even, as when air blows up a balloon, 
the stiffness of that. And also the water element. This element is not experienced directly, it is said. Um, <clears throat> and we might, we might experience the water element as touching water itself. But when we close our eyes, it's experienced as just heat or coolness or even softness. It's said that the water element binds all the elements together. So it's just this continual flow of experience, always changing, always moving. And when it's investigated deeply, it's not seen as solid. It's not seen as permanent. It's seen as ephemeral. It's seen as impermanent. So the anatta, the anicca characteristic, starts being unknown. Wisdom begins to be born in a deeper way. Our view of what we call body radically changes. I think Steve uh, told a story here about when uh, he was practicing in Burma and the body started to become so ephemeral as if it weren't there and he would have to look down and uh, see if he really put his robes on. And there are times like that also in practice when we begin to s- start walking and we, we wonder if we're walking on, on uh, something hard. It feels like there's a lot of lightness, sometimes floating, sitting or walking. It feels that way. Uh, for myself, the, this body becomes this whole bundle of elements. When I went to see a, an eruption on the big island one time, it's still, uh, Kilauea is still erupting. Just sitting there and watching um, some of the bubbling of the lava, this kind of hot flowing lava coming out one time when I was able to get closer to it. Um, now you're not able to get so close, but it's just this <clears throat> dissolving of who I thought I was and, and what that volcano was doing. It was just all this elemental quality weaving in and out of experience, coming and going, no different from that volcano. Heat element, air element, water element, earth element. So conventionally we say this body is me, mine, myself on a relative level, but on on an ultimate level, what begins to be seen is something radically different. What we call me, mine, and I, myself, is just this changing conditions of elements, of experiences. And so that through the deepening insight of anatta, anicca, we begin to see life in a totally different way. It brings forth this wisdom, this understanding of... um, Joseph says quite often, empty phenomena rolling on, empty phenomena rolling on. So this compassionate attention brings us to see this. We can't see it in any other way. It's not seen in this way. Intellectually, we may understand it, but experientially, it takes this kind of intimacy, this kind of closeness. And so... Insight, it's said that insight into the wisdom of the anicca characteristic, 
or the characteristic of impermanence, brings about insight into the anatta characteristic, the um, empty nature of experience. So this is from the Buddha, uh, the kindred sayings on the elements. He says, Just as brethren in the autumn season when the sky is opened up and cleared of clouds, the sun leaping up into the firmament drives away all darkness from the heavens and shines and burns and flashes forth. Even so, brethren, the perceiving of impermanence, if practiced and enlarged, tears out all conceit of I. And in what way, brethren, does it, te- does it wear them out? It is by seeing such is body, such is arising of body, such is ceasing of body, such is feeling, such is perception, the activities, such is consciousness, its arising and its ceasing. Even thus, practiced and enlarged, brethren, does the perceiving of impermanence tear out all conceit of I. So it's said that that happens, that the opening to impermanence brings the opening into the ephemeral, coreless nature of experience, the selfless nature of experience. And this also opens into the insight into dukkha, Uh, we live, of course, with this great vulnerability, this incessant change. This vulnerability is dukkha itself, is suffering itself. Where can we hang on to anything permanent that will give us lasting happiness? No such thing exists in this world. Ideas and concepts exist that we can hang on to But we see when we get beyond ideas and concepts, nothing is really permanent. We can't hold on to anything. This is dukkha. This is the understanding of dukkha. We try to find lasting happiness somewhere, and we see that eventually it ends. We go go after our, our idea of happiness, and we come close to it and experience it. Eventually it ends. And so we come to a place of understanding where what what we know, what we can rest in, is what really brings us happiness. Um, There's a chant, Anicca Dukkha, Anicca Vata Sankara. That means um, impermanent, all things are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.